Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with a bipartisan firm, Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week, we're going to bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So what are the top lines this week, Kristen? Uh, this week, the polls got Michigan right on the Republican side, but totally blew it on the Democratic side. We have a polling mystery to get to the bottom of, and we will tackle it on this show. We also have Super Tuesday number three coming up on Tuesday. Um, who's up, who's down, and who's racking up the delegates? And as we narrow in on the general, we'll take a look at some general election ballot matchups with Clinton and Cruz and Clinton and Rubio running very neck and neck. But Clinton and Trump, not so much. And then what's driving Trump's support anyhow? As this election gets crazier and crazier, what is it that is causing Trump to remain at the top of the polls? We'll look at some data about women participating in cable news programs talking about the election and what proportion of commentators are women, as well as some polling about podcasting and yoga. So first, instead of the poll of the week, it's more like the focus group of the week. And you can probably tell we're not in the sound booth this week. Chris and I are both, we're both traveling. I'm sitting in the back of a car, rental car in the parking lot at an airport. <laughs> Kristen's in a hotel room. So for a little treat, I thought I would watch while I'm traveling the um, FX show, The People versus OJ Simpson. It's like a reenactment, essentially, or dramatization of the whole trial from the 90s. And it's so entertaining. It's like the perfect travel treat. And one of the things, this is where the research part comes in. Um, they do a focus group, uh, both sides, both the defense and the prosecution do focus groups to help inform their jury selection. And they test video clips of the various lawyers. They test a video clip of Marsha Clark and she's behind the back room, just like in a political focus group, as if she was a woman candidate. And a lot of the gendered language that they use, and they really do such a nice, gentle touch with it. They don't make a whole production over how sexist all the respondents are and how she's got to just, you know, grit her teeth and bear it and listen to people say these very gender things about her. Like, oh, she seems like a know-it-all. I wouldn't want to be her boyfriend. I mean, things that were obviously have nothing to do with anything, right? The advice is she shouldn't wear suits anymore. She should wear skirts and tops and smile more, maybe change her hairstyle. And it just, it was so good because you could, you know, it's very much like what you hear when, when you do a focus group for woman candidate and people say things like that, maybe not quite as dramatic as in the show. And what I'm sure people would say, you know, people have said in focus groups similar to the kind of gender things people would say about Hillary Clinton in focus groups over the last 20 years. And, you know, I've tested, I've also done focus groups testing pundits and on-air folks and same kinds of things that people say about those folks. So I found it very 
realistic, right? And listening to them talk about the data and how to interpret it, I, I, it definitely rang true for me, for sure. So I, I've never done any sort of jury selection or even met anybody who's done any jury selection research. Have you, Kristen? Uh, I have not. I have, I have a lot of friends who are lawyers and have done the whole, you know, mock jury thing where you like test out your case on um, a, a fake jury. Uh, so you can see, okay, if I go in with this defense, do I, do I win the jury or not? Um, but no, I've never done research in that world. And I'm, I'm fascinated by this because I actually have jury duty coming up. Ugh. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated now by, by like learning everything I can about jury selection and how the prosecutors and the defense, you know, think through how they want to present themselves or what types of jurors they're looking for. Um, yeah, very interesting stuff. So if you guys out there, listeners, guys and gals, if any of you are involved in jury selection research or legal research like this, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to figure out who's the best person we should interview to talk about this. I think it'd be very cool because it's not something that I have any experience with, but it definitely, there's a lot of overlap. And then, you know, what do you do with the results, right? I mean, she, you know, she obviously, Marsha Clark obviously changed her hairstyle, right? But what do you do? You know, you, these are the realities that you have to deal with, right? People's prejudices and their biases. Do you, you know, try and change them? Do you ignore them? Do you try to you know, conform to them. I mean, that, none of that stuff has anything to do with the actual case you're presenting, but it doesn't matter because that's, you know, how people make decisions. So it was very, it was very fascinating. So you can use a research reason to binge watch what's ultimately a guilty pleasure. <laughs> I give you all permission to do well, that. Well, I am, ask, you know, ask a millennial. I'm excited about watching it because I was pretty young when the OJ trial was happening. Um, I remember being in science class in, I think, the seventh grade and they – or seventh or eighth grade and they, you know, stopped science class to show us the verdict. Like they put on the wow. TVs around the school. Um, but, you know, I was in middle school. I was way more concerned about everything but the OJ trial back then. So wow. I kind of want to watch this so that I can learn more and sort of relive this whole saga um, since I – kind of missed out on it the first time around. Yeah, no, I, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I think I'm enjoying it more this time around than I did the first time when it just felt so horrific and just, you know, took over everything. So anyway, so the big headline aside from this is what happened in Michigan this week. So I was in focus groups on Tuesday and then I come out of the focus, focus groups or is it between focus groups? I see like a thousand tweets. I'm like, oh, my God, what is happening in Michigan? And then at the end of the night and I was on the West Coast, so it was now like very late and um, on the East Coast. And, and just to see how different the results were to what everyone thought. I mean, I think both the Sanders and Clinton teams thought the race was narrower than what the polls showed. But the polls showed like 15 to 20 point or to 25 point advantages for Clinton headed into the Tuesday vote in Michigan. This is just in Michigan. And, um, and, and yet Sanders ended up winning the, in what happened overall on Tuesday. Ultimately, there's still net gain for Clinton because she ended up having more, uh, a larger delegate advantage in Mississippi. That's sort of undercovered, but the surprise, the polling upset was in Michigan. It's a diverse state. It's a different state than some of the other states he's won. And, you know, one, it's made people to reevaluate or think about where is the Democratic race going. But the other sort of more important issue for us to talk about is what does this mean for polling? You know, people kind of love this, like, oh my God, polling is all 
horrible and wrong. Everybody panicked. The sky is falling. Um, you know, we're always a little bit more conservative, <laughs> a little less likely to panic, you know, when these things happen. I mean, what did you think? You were probably watching it in more real time than I was. What did you think as you were watching that stuff come in? Well, so I, I confess that I was much more focused on the Republican side because when, you know, I am the biggest opponent of early exit poll overinterpretation. And when the early exit polls came in, combined with, um, you know, the very first like two or three percent of precincts, it showed Kasich like doing really well, like coming right. in very close with with Trump. Um, and we had just taped our episode last week where I looked through all of the polls and I said, look, in every poll in Michigan, John Kasich is in fourth place. Right. Um, that's true. But so, right headed into Michigan, right headed into voting like on Monday, there were like two polls that showed Kasich coming a little bit closer. Right. By the time you got to the end, the, so so I tweeted something like the only poll that shows Kasich up is ARG, which has a house effect that always shows Kasich doing much better than he actually is in any other poll. Um, but once all of the precincts were counted on the Republican side, it looked like the, oh my gosh, there's a polling miss story was over because the actual votes wound up matching up pretty closely with the polling average on the Republican side. So mm. I was more focused on that. And it wasn't until much later on in the night that I realized, wait a minute, whoa, 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 what's happening on the Democratic side? Um, and, and I wonder, I mean, there are a bunch of reasons that these could be wrong. I know on the Republican side, it's I feel like a lot easier to get it right if you're doing research that relies very heavily on things like landlines, et cetera, because that's who the Republican electorate is. Right. Whereas I've, I've always wondered if we're going to start seeing things get much more difficult on the Democratic side first because of the demographics of who votes in a Democratic primary and what their response rates might look like. Right, right. So there have been, and we're going to link to it in our show notes, there have been a variety of roundups that have been imposed in 538 and Politico and Washington Post, sort of the usual suspects going through some of the reasons that contributed to the quote unquote polling miss in Michigan on the Democratic side. So but uh, we're going to walk through just a few of them just to recap what we saw. Right. So the first is there's sort of not enough polling. The problem with polling is that there's not enough of it. <laughs> That's right. And so, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> we need more polling. So the internals, as I said, showed something quite a bit closer because uh, the campaigns obviously poll closer to the election and they don't release that, that data. But there was no public polling, I believe, after that was done, you know, after the debate on Sunday. Um, so that any change that would have happened at the last minute wouldn't have been reflected. The exit polls suggested that there was some movement at the end of people who decided in the last week went to Sanders disproportionately, uh, although people who decided in the last few days went to Clinton. So there's some there's just some movement that happened, maybe not in the last couple of days, but in the week before the election. Uh, another piece is that open primaries are simply harder to poll and um, may benefit, you know, t tend to benefit Sanders because if you have an open primary, you don't need to be registered as a Democrat in order to vote. That's going to allow for more independents and folks to come in uh, who may not be typical primary voters. There's also this... Um, uh, theory that there was strategic voting. We heard a lot about this in Virginia when we had the Virginia primary that people, you know, Democrats said, look, maybe the Democratic primary is all set. So I'm just going to vote in the Republican primary because I'm a never Trump person, which, you know, I don't know how many people do that without any sort of real coordination, how many people are actually doing that, but it could, you know, could make a little bit of a difference at the margins. Um, I mean, what do you think? Do you think that there's a lot of strategic voting going on in the Republican primaries? 
Uh, I, I am really skeptical of the strategic voting, uh, argument. I mean, I, I think that there, there are certainly some people who are doing it. And I think there was a Washington Post story blog post that this morning about how, yes, I'm sure everybody you know, knows somebody who's engaged in strategic voting or crossover voting or what have you. Um, I just did a focus group for a client last night that had nothing to do with uh, 2016. But at the end, I just kind of asked them, hey, who are you supporting? And one of my Tea Party Republican respondents said, oh, yeah, I voted for Bernie Sanders because I crossed over and I wanted to stop Hillary Clinton. I mean, everybody's got a story like that. <laughs> but getting people to vote is a hard task. Getting people to vote for someone who's not the candidate they actually like the best is a really hard task. Right. So I'm skeptical that this is happening in a widespread enough fashion to really be making the difference. Right, right. And also, I don't understand why on the Democratic side, that would be a sort of explanation for what's going... I mean, Unless it's that all of these people just magically decided to come over and vote in the Republican primary and I, I need to send out a lot more fruit baskets. I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, look, there's an argument to be made. Um, you know, I, we're not going to be able to further very far on, on this show. Right. But there's an argument to be made like the Trump situation is crazy. It's disturbing. It's hurting everybody. It's not just a Republican Party squabble. We all are going to suffer. and you know, Democratic primary voters we saw in Michigan, we've seen in other exit polls are going to be happy with whoever the candidate is. So don't vote if you can don't vote in the prime Democratic primary Democrats. Let's let's support our never Trump brethren in order to prevent a dangerous candidate from getting the nomination. Right. There's an argument for that for us to, I don't know, for people to talk about that and coordinate somehow in that way. But we can't leave it, you know, we can't assume that people are just doing that on their own in a systematic way that is changing elections. That's not to say that that doesn't happen. But, I, I, you know, I think the exception proves the rule. You know, everyone's got a little bit of a story. I don't think that's really the reason that all the polls were off. Um, you know, the other thing that I think makes a lot more sense if you look at some of the analysis is um, that a lot of the polls both uh, underrepresented younger voters and um, African-Americans, but also underrepresented, uh, undercounted what Sanders' strength would be in those communities. So Sanders did better with African-Americans in Michigan than in any other state where you could look at African-Americans independently. He got about 30 percent of uh, the vote in Michigan among African-Americans compared to, you know, anywhere from single digits to 20 something in all the other states. This is a you know handy graph at The Washington Post. So um, the Sanders team has been arguing that there are attitudinal differences between African-Americans in the South versus African-Americans in other states. It also could just be a time thing, just introducing themselves to to African-American voters as the primary season wears on. Who knows, right? We don't know the answer to that, but, um, or at least I don't, I can't tell the answer to that from the public polling, but that is part of what made the discrepancy between what happened and the polls headed into Tuesday. Um, you know, and the other thing is trade. I mean, I, I wouldn't, have thought that trade would have necessarily been so salient, but it seemed to be salient in the exit polls. There's a really good 538 analysis where they look at the attitudinal differences on a variety of issues between Sanders voters and Clinton voters. And trade is one of the like three or like four or so issues where there's a statistically significant difference out of like 15, 20 issues, you know? So it's not, 
you know, there isn't a difference on like everything. There's only a difference on a few things and trade is one of them. So given that that came up in the debate, you know, and given that it's Michigan and given that this is nationally one of the big differences, then, you know, perhaps that played a role here too. And then, you know, the last is that Michigan, you know, their primary has been a little bit, um, it hasn't been like a regular consistent primary. We can really just go back and look at everybody's voter history in a reliable way. So those are all the various explanations. Plus, of course, the polls are always wrong and they're all horrible. Everybody panic. <laughs> Plus that one. <laughs> Everybody freak out. <laughs> Everybody freak out. Right. So, I mean, a lot of folks are saying, well, now does this mean that all the polls in the Midwest are going to be wrong? Should we just not trust polls anymore? And that seems like a bit of an overreaction. You know, I mean, I think yeah. we should expect polls to be off in some of these harder to predict elections and primaries and, you know, it doesn't mean that the whole industry is off. It just means that, you know, people want to have the number before people just want to have the number before the number is ready. You know, <laughs> they just want to know the number, you know, and if the number is not exactly right, they're like, but I wanted that number right now, I guess. Right. There's no mm-hmm. other explanation for the emotional connection to it. Anyway. So what did you see on the Republican side after Tuesday, what were your thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, my thoughts were you had Donald Trump winning in both Michigan and in Mississippi, two states that are very different, sort of further underscoring this idea that Donald Trump is not just a regional candidate. Um, and there's a big story. There's a, a, a post up at 538 right now that I think echoes something that I said on this podcast a couple of months ago, which is, I can tell you who a Trump voter is. I can tell you who a Cruz voter is. I can tell you who a Kasich voter is. Or I think back then I was saying I could tell you who a uh, Jeb voter is. But it's hard for me to tell you who a Rubio voter is. And this now seems to be catching up with Marco Rubio. So if you take a look at, you know, who these candidates are doing well with, you've still got Trump doing well with slightly better with men, with kind of working class voters, with these moderate Republicans, people less attached to the process. You've still got Ted Cruz doing pretty well, although in many cases underperforming the numbers he needs to hit among evangelicals um, and very conservative since that's his niche. Um, and then you have Kasich who, you know, is started. I, I guess people are seeing Kasich momentum now. He just got the endorsement of Urban Meyer, the football coach at Ohio State University, with whom I have serious beef about his uh, desertion of the University of Florida football team. But I will set that aside for the moment. This is the uh, first time I'm ever hearing uh, who this person is. Do you think that his – I mean, I'm assuming that that's going to mean a lot in Ohio, right? I mean, I guess yes. if you're – I guess I if, firmly expect it will mean a lot in Ohio. Will well, it mean a lot I, in Florida? <laughs> will it matter in Florida? <laughs> I am trying to rally people <laughs> to Sorry, John Kasich. I think you're I think you're lovely and I know my dad's a big fan of yours, but gosh darn it, you've cast your lot in with Urban Meyer. I don't know if I can stand for this. Uh no, <laughs> I'm I'm making a bigger deal out of this than I I should. I'm I'm mostly just kidding. But uh, you know, what what I'm more focused on now is we are in this really close delegate fight on the Republican side. And it is increasingly clear that we're going to wind up with some kind of contested-ish convention. And many months ago, I remember talking on the show about how Ted Cruz was, you know, really working to put a team up in a lot of these places like Guam or what have you, so that he would win a majority of delegates 
in uh, under what's called Rule 40 on the Republican side. So this was a rule that was put in place um, around the last convention as a way to try to prevent someone like a Ron Paul from disrupting and causing chaos at a convention by saying you can only have your name entered into consideration if you win a majority of, of voter or a majority of delegates in eight states or territories. Um, so you can't just show up with a bunch of delegates you won from being second place everywhere and be entered into nomination that that won't fly uh the problem is right now nobody besides donald trump seems to be racking up enough first place wins to definitely be able to be entered into nomination um but ted cruz has got the team that i think has been the most focused on how do we make sure that we're doing everything we need to with rule 40 etc etc um so ted cruz right now is second he's behind donald trump by i believe about a hundred delegates at this point in the process i think donald trump has somewhere um i think it's something like either 350 or 450 and then cruz has a hundred behind him uh and then rubio trails i think rubio's only got like 150 delegates Kasich just has a small handful uh uh, the thing that Republicans are looking at now is just a, a delegate race. And so you've got coming up um, Florida, where you have Donald Trump well out in the lead, but some new polls coming out just as we began, uh, just as the day started, we had a new poll from Washington Post Univision showing Trump edging out Rubio very slightly, uh, 38% Trump, 31% Rubio. Um, that's closer than you're perhaps seeing in the polling averages, where right now the polling average has Trump at 40, Rubio at 26. Florida's kind of Rubio's last stand. If he can't pull off a win in his own home state, it might be time to sort of pack up and go. Right. Pack your knives and go. Right. Um, and, and also – Florida is a winner-take-all state, so we are now reaching the part of the primary where states are allowed to be winner-take-all. Florida, with 99 delegates, uh, if Trump were to win that big prize, that's very good for him. Ohio is also, I think, winner-take-all, and it's something like 60 delegates. Uh, and then you have weird states like Illinois, where Illinois has something called a loophole primary. Um, uh, so normally, I, I I was joking back when we were talking about Iowa that the democratic process in Iowa is just like bonkers crazy and the Republican process was much more normal. But when it comes to the convention, I feel like Democrats, you guys have a system figured out where even though there are superdelegates and that's got its own bag of controversy, at least it's fairly consistent how you count the delegates. On the right. Republican side, it's just like a complete jungle out there. And so in Illinois, they have a what's called a loophole primary where some of the delegates will go winner-take-all style to – whoever wins the statewide. But then a lot of the delegates will go based on, I think it's based on congressional district where each district or so I think will choose some delegates to go. And so you'll have two things on the ballot. One will be, who do you like? Um, and that's kind of a beauty contest. Like, do you like Trump or Rubio or Kasich or whomever? But that doesn't actually count for the district delegates that what counts for the district delegates is the names of the people who will be the delegates and it can say oh you know becky sue really likes marco rubio you know i think it says that on the ballot but you know these people you can say oh i like marco rubio but i also know of sally smith in my district and yeah she's a trump delegate and vote for her i mean it's just it's totally weird oh my goodness um and then you also have for instance i think john Kasich 
may not be on the ballot in Pennsylvania because there's controversy over whether or not he got signatures. But then Pennsylvania's delegates aren't pledged anyways. So this whole oh delegate <laughs> is going to be <laughs> this is crazy. I had no idea. That oh this yeah, was happening. that is completely. I'm to use my new favorite term, banana crackers, insane. And so, yeah, this is this is going to be a knife fight on the convention floor. It troubles me to say that that could literally be the case, not just figuratively, but literally. People are concerned about like outbreaks of violence in Cleveland at the convention. Um, and with every passing uh, week, it looks increasingly clear that Donald Trump will have the most delegates, but still can certainly be stopped from having a majority of delegates. Uh, it's just um, – and then what do you do? What do you do in Cleveland if Donald Trump shows up with a 1,000 delegates instead of 1,237? Can you deny him the nomination at that point? I would argue right. you can. He didn't show up with a majority, so – after first ballot, all bets are off. All these delegates become unpledged and it becomes a total rodeo. But uh, this is what Republicans are looking at. So it's crazy. <laughs> right. And so this goes back to, you know, what we were saying earlier, you know, the all hands on deck, the a Donald Trump nomination is damaging, not just to the Republican Party, but to everybody. And that if they're has to be some sort of short-term self-inflicted wound in order to circumvent some cuckoo law that, you know, very few people understand in order to get Trump, you know, to deny Trump the nomination is the long view better, not just, again, not just for Republicans, but for all of us. And I would argue, I mean, it's easy for me to argue, yes, you know, I don't have to pay that short-term price, but I would argue yes, because um, what he's offering is so dangerous. Now, we don't know what kind of general election candidate he would be, but what he's he is trafficking in racist and hateful language. And we got some flack from somebody on Twitter who said we were pushing an agenda because we went so we went too far to say he uses racist and hateful language. This came up in the Democratic debate last night. I was in groups as well, then saw that this was one of the main things people were chatting about on Twitter after the Democratic debate was that neither candidate uh, said that Trump is racist when asked by Karen Tumulty in the Univision Washington Post debate. Um, you know, I think I said this last week. It, it, it's difficult to to judge someone's heart, what they actually believe, but we can judge what they say. And the things that he says are hateful and racist. I mean, there's no end to them, right? They, it's not just a one-off hot mic situation. This is a, a consistent theme um, over months and months. And um, there's been, you know, a couple weeks ago, I have a friend, Matt McMillan, who wrote a piece about authoritarianism in, among Trump supporters. And it was one of the most popular things we ever put on our Facebook page, even more popular than man sneaks in the <laughs> Lunds focus group. Um, so there's been a lot of follow up about this. And this article, his theory and the article continues to bounce around. But there's been a new study that compared it's in the monkey cage blog at the Washington Post not just authoritarianism, but anti-elitism, a mistrust of experts um, and American identity, sort of feeling, you know, I guess, proud of American or identifying as American as something that's you're strong on. And that Trump voters were strong on all those things, authoritarianism, anti-elitism, mistrust of experts, American identity. Only Trump voters were strong on all of those psychological traits, but the authoritarianism, you also saw actually Cruz voters even more likely to score high on that personality trait. 
So that wasn't really a distinguishing characteristic, at least in this study among Trump voters. Um, what was distinguishing is that his voters are high on all of those things. If you look at, for example, Rubio voters, they were particularly low on anti-elitism. They're almost pro-elitism because they're sort of establishment Republicans, I guess. Even Cruz voters are are low on anti-elitism. And um, Sanders voters, you you know, are the are low on all of those traits except for that anti-elitism, which is you know something we've seen in other data. The analysis I was talking about earlier, one of the distinguishing characteristics between Sanders and Clinton voters is this feeling the system is broken. Exit polls show Sanders voters are more likely to be angry at the government, just like Trump voters. But that's where the similarities end. Everything else is, you know, they're very, their voters are very different on. So we're going to see more of this exploration of personality traits uh, of different candidates, voters. Um, there was another study also in the Washington Post about um, Trump voters being more worried about things like changing demographics, which is sort of this euphemism that people are using, um, you know, th- as a as a way of talking about the voters and their Trump voters in a way that's respectful, um, not criticizing, you know, this this conflict that folks have who are coming, you know, commenting on this. So like if Trump uses hateful language, what do we say about the voters who are supporting him? Um, so that's something that I think a lot of outlets and polls and pollsters and commentators are trying to figure out how to do in a way that's, you know, sensitive to all parties, but also calling out Trump for what he is, which is truly dangerous. I mean, is this, is this a conflict that's brewing on the right? Uh, well, I think on the right, what folks are trying to figure out is that as Donald Trump continues to cross new lines and boundaries with every given day, um, but also with the understanding that he has a large base of support of people who like him and are not white supremacists and are not. I mean, he, you know, in exit polls, he wins large swaths of voters who say they believe there should be a a path to legal status for people who are currently here undocumented. So, you know, there are uh, there's a a poll that, you know, asks people, what are your reasons for supporting various candidates? People who support Donald Trump, you know, primarily say it's because he's an outsider, because he's a good businessman, because he speaks his mind. I mean, things like immigration, only 8% of people name it. Um, you know, the, uh, so I, I think that it, one, it's important to differentiate between, I think that Donald Trump and his campaign have done something that is race baiting or offensive or whatever, and separating that from people who are not following Twitter day in and day out, like right. people like me, you know, I'm like right now the story I'm following on Twitter that is horrifying me is the story of this Breitbart reporter named Michelle Fields who was physically assaulted and has bruises on her arm by uh, being like thrown to the ground by Trump's campaign manager. Um, and Trump's campaign now coming out and saying she's making it up and she's attention seeking. And all oh of these reporters God. are now going – wait a minute, the Trump campaign is physically assaulting reporters and then accusing them of lying about it when other reporters were there and witnessed it. Um, this is scary. And this is like the third violent thing I've heard about at a Trump event in the last right. week. In the so, last week. So this is this is horrifying. And we should be able to call these things out and say what they are while also understanding that there are a lot of people who support Trump who are not 
excited about assaulting reporters. They right. just are like, well, he's good at business and we need someone who's good at business. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, these are, I think the first thing to do is just be sure you're always sort of separating out. This is something that Trump has done that is race baiting or racist or what have you. And then this is something his supporters believe. And sometimes those are not the same. And this is why I am always a vigorous opponent of the troll polls that, you know, will always purport, oh, look, you know, 80% of Trump supporters believe that uh, UFOs are real and, you know, stuff like that. I always hate polls like that because I don't think that's productive to declare an entire class of voters to be some horrible thing. But I, I think we do need to be able to call out when a leader does something that is profoundly over the line. And I mean, Margie, you have been so good on this show about not really showing your, you know, showing any sort of preference between Sanders or Clinton, always sort of disclosing, you know, that, that your husband works for Sanders, but you know, you always shoot it straight down the middle. And I, on the Republican side have been pretty clear about what my biases are and that when I'm analyzing the numbers, I don't want to have any bias involved, but I, I mean, I, view Trump as a mortal threat to our country and certainly a mortal threat to conservatism and republicanism. Um, in no way does that change my, you know, analysis of the Florida polls that say Trump's probably going to win in Florida at this point. Right, right. Um, but I, I think for people in our job, we should not be, I, I think if, if you're too detached and too, oh, I don't have any biases, I'm just observing. I mean, everybody has biases and I think it's much better to just put that out on the table where we have biases, disclose what those biases are and go from there, um, than try to, you know, dance around it too, too carefully, because especially when it comes to Donald Trump, I mean, some of these things are not a gray area and they need to right. be called what they are. Right, right. And I mean, I can understand why. You know, Democratic candidates don't want to sound like they are insulting or even get close to the fact where they're going to insult voters that they need, I suppose, right, by calling Trump racist. I don't know. Maybe it was a missed opportunity for both of the candidates. Maybe not. But I don't have those problems. <laughs> like, it's OK. I'm OK going out on a limb and saying what he's saying is racist and hateful. And, and we all need to, you know, call it how we call it like we see it. Um so, and, you know, the other last, the two other last things, and then we can move on from 2016, is, you know, the, the Gallup poll, which you cited, that shows that immigration is not the top issue for why people support Trump. What the Gallup poll does show is this real clarity of what people like about Trump and a lot more fuzziness and blurriness of what people like about Cruz and Rubio. Um, I, I think there have been a lot of polls that suggest that whether you're looking at the attitudes or whether you're looking at the demographic groups. And I think that it's, you know, it's not just that people are responding to his Muslim ban that makes Trump doing, you know, that's not the only reason he's doing so well. As you point out, there's something about his style and clarity and maybe something more lackluster of Cruz and Rubio at the same time that makes a lot of voters, I think, on the right say, you know, I get it. I know what he's trying to say. He's speaking in, you know, he's speaking in a way that I, I get. He's not just, you know, um, using a lot of dense language or being obtuse or trying to avoid the answer, avoid the question. He's just saying it like it is. And that's what we need because everything is gone, you know, is going to pot in the country. So I think there's an element of that that's stylistic that is 
intertwined with some of the language and policies that he supports, but is not necessarily one and the same. And then the last thing I'd say, we can take a little bit of comfort in this, although I still don't think it, it serves any of us to have him Trump be the nominee, but he is still quite weak um, in the general election. And we don't need to belabor the general election matchups here because I think we both think that these are, you know, it's too early to really say anything about what these, you know, national popular vote general matchups mean at this point. But both Clinton and Sanders get to 50, over 50 percent in a matchup against Trump. Sanders actually does a little bit better in the Huffington Post pollster averages. And that's the only matchup. Well, it's one of the few matchups, Sanders versus Cruz. Sanders is at 52, but it's one of the few matchups where uh, <clears throat> both Democrats are at 50 and it's against Trump. I mean, Trump continues to have really high unfavorables. Um, you know, if that keeps up, he'll be a very damaged general election candidate. Um, that doesn't mean we want to take that chance. But, you know, that's something that can give us a little bit of comfort at this point. So moving on to the f- more fun stuff. So it turns out, Kristen, we are in the 14 to 49 <laughs> <laughs> percent. We are we are a special crew. So fascinating study. Um, I, maybe it's only fascinating to people like Margie and I because we are the subjects of the study. Um, but there's a project called Who Talks um, that is a it's a partnership uh, with the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. Um Women's Media Center, basically they, they go through and they're watching six of the highest rated cable TV news programs. So they watch New Day on CNN and Anderson Cooper on CNN. On Fox, they watch Fox and Friends and The Kelly File. And on MSNBC, they watch Morning Joe and Rachel Maddow. And they code what the gender of the election commentators is. So um, – and they count as a commentator anyone who's on the program – who gives any substantive comment on the 2016 election. So you don't necessarily have to be a campaign pollster or something, but if you were on the show and you say something about the election, you count. Um, Anderson Cooper 360, which I think I was on the show during the time frame in question that they did this. This is from the week uh, February 29th through March 4th. Uh, they found that 49% of all guests talking about the election on AC 360 were female and 51% were male. Uh, way, to best, way, way to go. Way to go, Anderson Cooper. Um, and Rachel Maddow's show, uh, a third were female, two thirds were male. Um, CNN's New Day, you had 29% were female, 71% were male. So we're getting into a little bit dicier territory. And then you get into Fox and Friends, where only 14% of the election commentators were female. Kelly File, where only 14% of the commentators were female. And Morning Joe, which is a program that, that I believe I was probably also on during that window, only 17% of the election commentators were women. And, and I do notice that many days when I am on the show, it is me and it is Mika, and we are kind of the only women in the hour that I'm on. Um, that's not to say they don't also have other women on the show, but I had always just sort of noticed that. And now there's, there's data backing up that it is a very heavily male guest centric program. So we know you're listening out there, producers and reporters. And, you know, I think that I, I think these numbers are tough. I think we could do a little bit better. I just there's no there's a zillion, you know, there's a zillion ladies out there who can talk about 2016. So um, so there's really no excuse for that. Anderson, you know, it's funny that a male hosted show, I think Anderson Cooper is probably the only show that is 100 percent male hosted has better numbers than everybody else. Um, 
But I know that Chris Hayes, I mean, I've seen analysis of this that looks at like all the shows all and Chris Hayes, I think, is one of the shows that is really very strong in terms of diversity on his on his show. Um, Obviously, this got a little bit in the news recently with Melissa Harris Perry um, releasing some, you know, some data about what's going on in the various networks. So I know this is something that gets discussed a lot. I don't think these numbers are getting that much better than you know, than all the time that people have been talking about, maybe just a little bit, but I think, um, I think we can do better gang. I think we can do better. So if you need some, some tips or some other names of folks, just ask us, cause we know lots of ladies who can talk about this sort of thing. Yes, we do. Um, so podcasting, it's like really a thing now. This is actually happening. When we first started our show, one of the very first polls we talked about was Edison's infinite dial, survey that they do every year to explore all the different sort of share of ear looking at podcasting and internet radio and all the different ways and places that people uh, consume audio content. And uh, we had Joe Lenski from Edison on the show a couple of weeks ago. And so Edison actually sent us this, uh, hey, that we just released this FYI. So we, I'm glad that they did. So they flagged it for us, and which means I think they're going to release the larger study soon. So we'll talk about it again. But what it showed uh, in this latest wave is that now 21% of people adult, 12 and older, so it's not just adults, it's 12 and up, um, have listened to a podcast in the last month. That's up from 17%. Uh, last year. I mean, this is obviously, this is not just a trend. It's not just cereal, right? Because cereal was in 2015. So um, this is really, you know, maybe we can take credit for this. Maybe it's the pollsters. Maybe it's the pollsters bump that has caused national podcast consumption to go from 17% to 21%. I am very excited that we have caught this trend at the right moment. And I feel like I'm now starting to see podcasts kind of popping up more and more and more and more from columnists and commentators that um, I, I admire and I like. So I'm glad that we kind of got in when the getting was good. Um, and this past weekend, I was at a conference down in Miami, um, spoke at the Public Affairs Council's big, uh, big annual uh, PAC conference. And I had multiple people come up to me in the book signing line and say, I listen to your podcast. I love your podcast, like far more than said, oh, I've seen you on TV or anything like that. So podcasting man we got in on the trend at the right moment go us if we were in the same room i would high five you right high five yeah (laughs) (laughs) but we are speaking of this actually we're going to be at the museum um like a week and a half from now march 19th and i think we're going to be on with some other uh, political podcast folks still tbd um and talking about the role of you know, talking about politics and the format of podcasting as a way to understand and consume news. So if you're in town or you're headed to the museum, you should come check us out. Um, and so then speaking of what we were doing in the past weekend, while you were in Miami, I was in Tulum, Mexico, which if this doesn't sound like your thing, please don't go there because it's so lovely and wonderful. I've been going there for a while. It's like yoga and, and on the beach in like every place it's like a strip of beach hotels and each one has like yoga and kale smoothies and raw food and you know that not much else right (laughs) that's all that goes on there it's like where you go to really just chill and just relax and you can sit on the beach on these like beautiful 
all these beautiful, um, like really small hotels, not like giant all inclusive high rises, like places that are two stories and have eight rooms. And you can go to a little like yoga studio where you have a giant window and you just see the ocean and hear the ocean while you do yoga and the, you know, beautiful sunrises every morning. And it's just lovely, lovely, lovely. And so even I can manage to relax a place like that. And I read, of course, cause I was reading yoga journal while I was down there that, um, they had released a study. I was like, oh, we have to talk about this, you know, next week on the show. And I was amazed. $17 billion is the amount that people spend on yoga stuff every year, which I found incredible. And we were talking about women being underrepresented on TV. They are overrepresented in yoga. Probably not a surprise. 72% of people who are doing yoga are, uh, are women. So that's where the ladies are. If they're not on TV, they're doing yoga. And, um, most, nearly all people who do yoga also do some other form of exercise, which I thought was pretty interesting. And most of them are fairly new to practice. 74%, three-fourths have started doing yoga in the last five years. So that is the latest yoga, polling on yoga. There's polling literally on everything. And as I was down there trying to relax, of course, I was also listening to the Republican debate on my phone. <laughs> on my phone. Because <laughs> why not do that, right? And... And, uh, and I, then they were talking about, like, they were, sort of, it was that really horrible one, right? It was like the yes. really horrible, horrible one. And I'm like, this is really not, this is kind of harshing my vibe here. And, um, and they were talking about yoga, like, you know, oh, you need to breathe. Oh, why are they doing yoga over there? Oh, well, Trump is flexible. And I thought, this is the opposite of what's going on. <laughs> this is not the kind of this, I don't, this kind of yoga is infecting my Tulum yoga. So I think it was Ted Cruz who was the one that said, I don't think anybody wants to see the us up here on stage doing yoga. And I was like, politifact, aggressively <laughs> true. Yeah. And Very, I, what's the opposite of pants on fire? What is like, this exactly. is the truest thing ever uttered on this debate stage. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So key findings. So the moral of the Michigan Michigas is one, we need more polling and two, we're going to get more polling because we have a lot more competitive states to, to explore. Um, is Trump doing well because people are responding to his racist language or because they're responding to the clarity of his message or because they hate the establishment? No matter the answer, it's perhaps time for all hands on deck. Remember, you are already on the cutting edge of two trends. One, listening to women commentators and two, listening to podcasts. And if primary season is still getting you down, try some yoga where women rule and actual hand size is sometimes relevant. It's not some childish insult. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters. You can find us individually at, at Soltis Anderson and at Margie O'Mero. We're at thepolsters.com or you can find us on Facebook where we'll be posting links throughout the week of the latest polling stories that we will want to talk about on the show. Be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Uh, and if you have not yet written a review, we always love to hear from you. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.